I was gonna chime in with some Cornell West stuff, but I mean, chime in with that Cornell West. Well, I, you know, I really appreciated uh, you. You're like trailblazing this um, strength-based sort of paradigm and, and, and way of viewing, you know, young black boys. And I think, you know, I brought it up with the. Uh, in our other NAPCAST episode where Cornell West talks about how liberal and conservative thoughts are black people need to either be saved or they need to be and fixed or they need to be integrated and included rather than just being just be right <laughs> just just be who they are and I think that's what you're promoting you know at an earlier level so yeah, big ups to you on that that's really yeah I love what you had to say thank you <laughs> You might recognize that voice. That's Amir Gilmore, who is also featured on NAPCAST, special episode number one. Is America anti-Black? Today, he returns for another conversation, an impromptu one, actually, as Nick and Mike were able to catch him at the end of one of his workshops to discuss the insurrection on January 6, 2021 on the Capitol in Washington, D.C. All right, y'all. So everyone knows that child care is essential. We're some of the most influential people out there. Yet, we are often overworked and underpaid. So how can you work full-time, have hobbies, show your friends and family love, self-care, and also fine-tune your skills and grow more in-depth? That's where we come in. These NAPCasts are designed to help you learn on the go, hear another perspective, spark debate, (laughs) heck, even agree with us, but honestly, remind you that you're not alone. We live in a complex world, so allow us to challenge your perspective. So are your headphones in? Did you turn the volume up? All right now, good. Let's get it. We just did a workshop just now on Black Boy Joy. And uh, we're staying after to kind of talk about the insurrection, what happened on the Capitol, and the attack on our democracy. So I guess I want to start there, Mayor. How do we, how do we look, how do we find joy in, if this is even possible? <laughs> how do we find joy in the insurrection in, the, the uprising that happened in D.C. on um, January 6th. Yeah. January yeah. 6th, yeah. And, yeah, and what were your, like, initial reactions when you saw that happening? So I would say I'll start with uh, my initial reactions. And I was just, I was, to be honest, I was writing a paper and I continue to write a paper because I'm like, this, is, this has been a culmination of, I mean, obviously the last four years, but, like, something that has been brewing for, I mean, as long as America has been around, Right. I mean, like that whiteness has always ruled and will continue to rule in, in this country, right? And so, I mean, what we saw was white supremacy, I mean, in, in naked form, right? Like just, just naked, right? Like seeing white, you know, men and women just kind of storm of capital. Um, I mean, I'm not, I'm not surprised. And this is kind of like the chickens coming home to roost moment, right? And so I, I wasn't surprised. And I think that the joy, if I could find joy in that moment is that like, Everything that Black people, Black, Brown, Indigenous people have been saying forever in books, in videos, 
I mean, it's it was it's true. And I think, you know, the world again has woken up. America has woken up again to the idea that, like, mm, I think America is actually racist. <laughs> so I, I think, you know, that is really the uh I think that's 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 really the, the the I guess maybe the good part, right? Like I was doing this this napcast podcast with y'all, right? I think it was what, five, six months or I forget how long ago. And we asked the question, right, is America anti-black? But like, and the question, and the answer is yes. And I think we can, we really see like how anti-black this this, this country is. And you know, and that goes back to your presentation and you just kind of nailed it on the head right there and, and made it more um, illuminated for me is that the concept of joy being political. And, you know, and I think that like, yeah, it's like kind of kind of joyous to see everything shown into light and you know with a couple of my trump supporting friends or i've said this to mike i'm like yes trump has done something really good he really pulled back the curtains and exposed how like how deeply ingrained racism is in in our system you know it's kind of really you, you turn on the lights and the roaches scattered and they all scattered towards the capitol building <laughs> and, and even going a little bit further you know you said joy's political teaching's political you know, you mentioned that before. We mentioned that a couple of times. That what you choose not to say or say, things you choose to do or do, has very real consequences. And most of those consequences, even if you don't have any black or brown children in your care, it's ultimately going to fall upon them because one day little Johnny or Billy is going to be eighteen, nineteen. And little Johnny or Billy may or may not, depending on what you choose to address, how you choose to speak to someone, what you chose, what books you decided to read, and also not just pulling any book off the shelf, but actually doing your due diligence and reading the book <laughs> to make sure that it's not perpetuating any additional white supremacy tendencies, thoughts, or ideologies, that Billy is eventually going to be in a moment in his, her, their life where they're going to be confronted with a racist moment in action. And Billy is going to think back to what you said when you were two, five, eight years old, or 18, and think, huh, I was never taught that Black Lives Matter. Oh, I guess I'm just going to be fall witness to this racist incident. So teaching mm -hmm. is political. Yep. Yeah, and, you know, and it's that, that thing, that concept, Mike, and, and I think Amir, you would agree that, you know, teaching, yeah, can either continue to perpetuate status quo or it can serve as a platform to challenge and, you know, shake up the system. And yeah, so no, I choose, I choose the latter, I guess it would be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I, I think to that point, you know, I, I, you know, being a pre-service uh, educator, right. And I, I think, you know, I think this, this moment is really, really, I think important, but I just really, really wanted to step back with the ideas is that like, yeah, no one, no one really teaches, no one really has those conversations, no one really confronts. But I mean, because like that, I mean, that that's, that's the power of white supremacy is that silence, you know, the dividends of, you know, of believing in these, these ideas, um, it's to give, you know, all, all this type of, of power. Um, and I think, you know, Mike, I think, you know, you, you even talked about like, you know, reading these books and doing the due diligence. And it's just like, I think for me, it's just like, I, I meet a lot of white people, a lot of white colleagues that say like, well, this is not the America I know. And it makes me wonder like, well, what, what books have you been reading or what reality have you been living in to say that like, this is not the America you know, because this is, this is America. This has been America. 
And I'm quite sure this will continue to be America with people that have that have those type of mindsets to say, like, this is not the America I know. Um, so, again, I think, you know, the beneficial part is that it really put on display, like, truly at heart what America really is. It's a country for white people. Um, and apparently white people were mad that they are losing the idea. They're losing their, their, their grip or their power um, as white people in this, in this country, in this changing country. Hey, Amir, do you think when that statement, this isn't the America I know, is a form of denial? Oh, oh, hell yeah. If I could say that, yeah, it's definitely, <laughs> you know, like it's, I mean, you know, but I think a lot of bit of, about whiteness and white supremacy, it's self-denial, right? It's, it's, it's predicated on bad faith, right? To say like, this is not the country I know, like you're really predicating yourself on bad faith because like, I mean, black, indigenous, brown people have been talking about this forever. As long as this country, as long as, you know, we've had the ability to write books in this country, we've been writing books about how this country is and and the, and the, the wages of whiteness. And so, you know, I think for, for white people to have these privileges and, and, and rights, right, you know, you have to be in that self-denial, right? You have to kind of block out the world. You have to kind of live in your own reality and kind of see the world for through, through the lenses of, of a white person because everyone in this country that is not white has been saying the same story um, for a very, very long time. And I, I always rub elbows with all these white people. And I mean, bless the heart. And uh, that they say that this is not the country that they know. And I would love to know what country, what, what country are they living in? And I, I sometimes I, I'm taken aback. <laughs> so if, if people didn't understand what we're talking about, we're talking about the insurrection. I, I don't know how many, I don't know if I actually said that <laughs> to begin with. But my next question to you, and I'm going to kick it off with with you, Amir, is how are you having this conversation with pre-service teachers? So you're just remind us where where you're from and who you're repping, and you know I know Nick is about to say go Cougs. So. Oh, you always say <laughs> yeah, go Cougs, yeah. <laughs> ruining that joy. Almost Cougs. Um, yes, I mean yes. Yeah. So so go Cougs, right? So. Um, I'm a professor, assistant professor in cultural studies and social thought and education at Washington State University Pullman. So yes, definitely go Cougs. Um, and I think, you know, to your, your question, Mike, you know, how do we have this conversation? Um, so the, the, the class that I teach is Teaching and Learning 467 Adolescents uh, Community in School. Um, it's it's for, for pre-service teachers, that is their diversity class. So I'm the Black guy teaching diversity, which is the most prototypical, you know, diversity thing that you could ever do to a black teacher, but here I am doing this. And I've been, you know, this semester will be the, the eighth semester of me teaching this class consecutively. And I've been having this conversation with white pre-service teachers about whiteness all this time. And they um they they you know they 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 choose they choose not to listen what I'm trying to say is right and so so like I will bring different types of books into play. So like one book, which is the most basic book, not a basic book, but it's basic level. So like Robin D'Angelo's White Fragility, right? I Do I love Robin D'Angelo on some degree? Yes. Do I wrestle with her because she's a white woman that's been using uh, the terminology and languages of black people forever and gets paid for it? I have a problem with it. But, which, 
what she tries to do at the the, the very like uh, fundamental level is really to get white people to understand how they've been socialized in a white social environment and how they you know how that benefits them, protects them at the expense of others, and those others are black people. And when I teach white fragility to my students, they 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 turn around and run. They get defensive. They get angry. They don't want to listen. They don't want to think that they are these white people that Robin D'Angelo uh, is talking about. I'm like, no, 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 no. You are the white people that she is talking about. Those people over there. Yeah. Yes, yes, exactly. And so, you know, my my white teacher, pre-service teachers, you know, they think that the problem is not them. It's those other white people. But those other white people think the problem is not them. It's those other white people. So I think going back to Nick's, you know, point of self-denial, everybody's in self-denial of the actual truth at heart here that like white people are definitely the problem when it comes to um, if you want to call progress or equity, equity or educational justice in, in this country. Um, so I will definitely, you know, teach this moment to my, my, my students. And I'm pretty sure everyone will have things to say. You know, I have students that are, you know, moderates, conservatives, you know, you know, leftist leaning people. Um, and I think it's really, it's really, really hard um, to have this conversation because I think at the end of the day, white people don't want to implicate themselves within the system of whiteness. And I think that is, that's inherently the problem. So, so what do you say if you are, for our listeners who are in a school in rural Indiana, and they are the only quote-unquote woke, woke white woman in a sea of conservatives? What are you saying to them to, to support them in their, in their growth? Or maybe just words of encouragement. I mean, uh, you know, I'm I'm here. I think. Uh, thank you, right? I guess if if I could say that, thank you for being a, a decent human being and a, a good person. Uh, but I also think about like at the end of the day, like just because you understand whiteness and white fragility doesn't mean that you don't receive the dividends of being a white person in this world, right? And so, like, there's still more work to do. I'm glad that you are the woke person in the room. But like, what does that mean? How does that change my life as a black person that you are woke? based on the uh, the uh, my my black pain or my narratives like what does that change how does that dynamic really save me and i think that's the problem that we also have in this country right and so you have a group of white people that have like they're like well i'm not like i'm not these racist people like trump and you know the people that follow trump right I'm not that, but they don't understand that like, they are also still implicated because like, just because you are woke or understand some of these things, how are you saving black people from their actual problems, right? Like you sharing a video of a black person dying, hashtagging something really doesn't change the outcome of black people in this country. So what I would say to that, that woke listener, like, well, what are you actually doing materially to to change the lives of, of, of people around you? Um, and I think that's really, for me, that's the most important part. And I hear you, Amir, uh, at the beginning, when you were saying, you know, like for this metaphorical white woman in Indiana, you know, it also sounds like, and I don't know who's, respo- who's responsible for this, but individuals need to find their own process of self-confession, right? The, the sort of uh, other side to the denial part. And I'm totally deriving most of this thinking from Ibram X. Kendi. And, you know, really just, I really love his concept of that. And, and you know, I think there's some work to be done. Um, and I think that's the biggest thing why people need to really explore within themselves is just confessing 
you know, and to really diminish that denial by confession. Um, and then going to your point of, you know, your pre-service teachers, what, what would you say to some people who say, well, I saw black people there. I saw some brown people there storming the Capitol. Like, I'm, I've been curious, I've been meaning to ask you that, Mike, like what your sort of, um, your thoughts are on that as well. Good. I'm just going to deflect to there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, I think there's, there's two things, Nick, that you had said that I definitely want to unpack. So like one, you talked about that confessional piece. Um, and I, I feel like, you know, in some regards, like, you know, they guess white people do need to confess, but somehow they always want to find that black person to confess to. And somehow that, that absolves them of their whiteness. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Like you telling me that like somehow like you were, you know, did something racist or you are a racist does not absolve you from racist uh, racism or your implications within it, right? And so um, usually I'm that black person because I'm the black person on the white campus and white people love to tell me like how they have done things and how they need to change or how they have a black son at home or they have a black something, cousin, auntie, whatever, whatever you have you. And so they're, they're confessing their, their, their racial guilt on upon me. But my question to you is to them is like, well, what are you actually doing to really change any of these situations? Like, I, why am I, I, I should not be feeling, I should not feel bad for the guilt that you have because of these systems that maintain your, your status in, in, in this world. Um, but I will tell you, I'll put that out there to any university president, you know, that feels guilty about their whiteness. If they want to pay me about $5,000 to talk about white guilt, I will surely do that for them as well. I'll be their race confessional person. Yeah. <laughs> that makes them feel better. But $49.95, not a dollar more. I will, um, I mean, all, all jokes aside, tongue in cheek, I think to, to return to your second point, Nick, about like, well, there was, you know, black or brown people there at the, the riots. I mean, there will always be black and brown people, right? There will always be those people that will, um, be enamored or be enraptured by white whiteness, right? So I think for for to to the that's the other part of teaching my pre-service teachers, like there's a difference between white people and systems of whiteness, right? Because whiteness, anybody can embody whiteness, right? Even myself as a black man can embody whiteness, right? Because it's a system, it's a practices, it's ideology, right? And so I think making that uh making that understanding uh, uh to white people that there's a difference between white people whiteness is highly important the same way like how a black person can um hold xenophobic values so, like i not say i i believe this but like if i say build the wall right like i'm believing i'm partaking in this xenophobic nature this culture this ideology of saying that you know certain groups of people are not welcome um or are, are, are less than right and so well all this to say that you White people will always find that that one black or brown person or that two black or brown people that that believe in whiteness. That I mean, that's white supremacy. It's an it's intoxicating. People get enraptured by that. They believe in it. We'll be right back. Hilltop Children's Center is a high quality preschool, after school program, and professional development institute of early learning and inquiry, serving the Seattle community since 1971. Together. We are working with the next generation of inventors, leaders, thinkers, artists, and social activists. For more information on our professional development and community outreach, including workshops, presentations, blogs, coaching and consulting, and of course, this NAPCAST, please visit www.hilltopcc.org. Nick, how are you, so now you're in a director role, 
encouraging. Yeah, you know, he done moved on up. Yeah. You ain't know that. <laughs> hey! Getting <laughs> paid 17 cents more. Um, <laughs> but how are you encouraging your your educators now, your team, and the people that, that you work with to, to have that courage to bring it up to children? Yeah, and you know, uh, so Amir, I'm now at a, um, at a at a preschool that I direct that is uh, rooted in um, Indigenous peoples curriculum and 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 um, and our localized Duwamish people uh, and the ancestral language of the Lashootsi. And so, one thing that you know, we talked about this in one of our other napcasts um, that I that I would encourage all educators to, and it's something that me and my educators are going to start uh, that we've been kind of talking about here and there. Um, is, you know, really breaking it down to young children. Like, hey, you might have heard this word come up. It's called, you know, you might hear democracy a lot. Mm-hmm. Do you know where the, and, and, and there's people who are angry that stormed this Capitol building and they were wanting to take back their democracy or they were wanting to reverse these things in maybe another word you heard, the constitution. Well, let's talk about where that came from. You know, and this, our napcast that we did was called Democracy is Indigenous because the concept of and the basis of what the United States Constitution is built on came from the Iroquois Confederacy of Upper New York, where y'all are from, you know. And so there was a confederacy of, of a bunch of nations um, with and the Iroquois being one of the biggest one. And there are several bands and they had what is essentially yeah, the framework for what we call our democracy. And so everything that was on display January 6th in some aspects was indigenized or or anti-indigenous because they're trying to dismantle a framework that they say is the American system, Mm -hmm. but really not recognizing that that American system came from the blood, sweat, tears, and the supreme intelligence of the native people there. And, and so it's just kind of, you know, I think it's, you know, helping children and especially at a young age, realize the depths of history and the, the historical components to the, to the words that they're hearing, democracy, constitution, where do those come from? They didn't just emerge out of the knowledge of these white men, you know, they, they took it from somewhere. And so, and I think that that's important for at a younger when, when kids are hearing these big words that we, we give it more depth than just, oh, that's how we run our country. Yeah. You know, really work to unpack it with them rather than just throwing out these words. Yeah. And so I think that's the sort of indigenous lens that, that we're going to be, you know, exploring. So I, I, and I, I, and I think that's, that's great. But I think for me, it's like, I guess the question and the thoughts that I have is like, well, how, how is democracy and the constitution really taught to, to young people? Right. And the idea that like, it's from like white men or like very like Greco Roman societies, right. It's Western civilization that democracy really comes out of. And so I, I, I really do appreciate uh, really challenging that because I think, you know, you know, we, we teach that, you know, democracy and the constitution and how we build democratic societies is a very white Western uh, European type of thing. And so I think that, you know, that, that narrative really needs to be challenged. Um, and so I think that's, I think that's really important work to, to really, to really do. 
Um, because then, you know, I, I encounter, you know, 21, 22 year olds, you know, students that want to be educated and they think that everything that a democracy is from Western Civ. And I'm like, Ooh, you're way off base, but okay. I don't have time to teach you this, but, <laughs> you know? So I, I think, I think, you know, to that point, like the work that you're doing is really powerful and meaningful work. So that way, you know, we, 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 I don't say build better citizens, but we have more informed people that really understand, um, that, you know, these these notions came from somewhere and sometimes these you know these notions these ideas do not come from white people yeah yeah and you know even unpacking it further that within those uh confederations of native people that a lot of the times the uh the leaders were women you know and so i think you know there's another layer right there that i think you know helps us deconstruct what what we saw on display on january 6th in in our session, you someone posed a question to you, Alaire, talking about um, there's two children playing. They were like three or four, and the white child said to the black child, "I'm better than you," right? Which I thought was like, "Oh, <laughs> I was like, all right, here we go," right? Um, so I don't have a question per se, but to both of you, how would you how would you address that? Because, you know, connecting this into the insurrection yeah. or, and, and all that. I, I think for myself, you know, it, with young children, there's often a lot of like things that come out of their mouths, but there's, and the context isn't always there. So it's kind of, you know, really, yeah, again, unpacking, like, what's the context that they're speaking from? Like, yeah, what are they talking about? <laughs> you know, and I guess that's just, you know, where I would just start. You know, and then I think it does, though, it's something that, like, obviously, if it's between two different um, children of different color, then I think it's easy for our brains to go into that, that sort of thinking, especially this, this day and age. Um, but I think it does implore us to, to dig a little bit deeper with that child. And I'm like, what do you mean you're, you're better than that? And for what came up for me, like, my first reaction was to kind of make it to make comparison with mm. children. So I probably would have went up, first of all, I would have checked in with that black child and make sure that black child is okay. Because if we're trying to, if we're going to talk about equity, we're going to talk about centering blackness, that's that's a tangible thing that, that we can do. Checking in with that black child, with the child who was harmed. So that's the first thing. Second thing will be, I would almost make it a comparison where I would say, well, I'm taller than you. Does that make me better than you? Right, and just kind of see where they would go with that. Or I would say, hmm, I have a phone and you don't. Does that make me better than you? And then, of course, hoping that they would actually say no. And then I slowly start to move towards, well, what makes this person's skin color better than yours? And then trying to make like, oh, just because you have certain things, just because of your height, your ability, your identities, doesn't make it true. And then, you know, I know someone else said within the, within our workshop that, well, that's what they heard their parents or white parents speak. And then I would counter with that and say, well, that's what they might think, but that's not necessarily what society might think. And in our classroom, blah, 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 blah. Right, blah. But, but yeah, and, and you know, I think before that, like how do you unpack the concept of better, 
Mm, yep. You know, like what's, you know, unco- uh, unpacking that concept is better before I think going to these comparison models, because then I think you're just, you know, the child's already at a loss. Like I, of course you're better than me. You can, because you're taller. Cause, mm. Yeah. You can reach the cookies and I can't, yeah. <laughs> you know, or like, yeah, you got a phone or whatever mm-hmm. and you can watch Paw Patrol and I can't, you know, like, so I think, yeah, like really exploring again, that that's, that's where I'm thinking like, well, what, what do you mean? Where are we starting from? Yeah. You know, yeah. what does better mean? Um, so that's a loaded term. Yeah. Well, yeah. I, I, I think about that. Right. And I think, you know, listen to you, Mike and, and Nick, I mean, like, for me, it's just like, well, does does that child, let's assume that this white, this child is white, right? Uh, does that child truly believe that? Or are they just parroting what, what, what society and, and their parents just tell them? Because parents will tell children a whole lot of things. Doesn't really make it true, right? It's like, what does that child really believe? Because I mean, like, I remember being a child and I would just say stuff just to say stuff. And doesn't really, you know, I didn't really believe it, but I just said it because, you know, like, and so I would really want to know, you know, like where where is that, where is that child at? I mean, it does not excuse what that child said, right? But I just really want to really understand like where they at and do they believe that? Because if they do believe it, then that just shows you the illuminates how much work that you have to do as a teacher. And if that if, if that child does believe it to be true, then you have a lot of work to unpack. Um, but I think you know, going back into that session, um, I think educational justice can only go as far as the teacher. So let's just say if that happens, and the teacher is just like, "Well, that's just what it is," you know, or it's just like, "Oh, that's just Timmy being Timmy," and never really um, you know mitigates that or you know jumps in to do something about that to have the conversation, um, you know. I think that that is that's inherently the issue. I think so many times teachers just let things go, let things slide. They don't want to get involved. They don't want to get parents involved. I'm like, no, 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 no. Get parents involved. Call the parents. You should be okay to be like, I'm gonna call your parents and have a conversation with with with, with parents about this. Um, I think that's that's something that's really important to to really make that stand and say like, yeah, like what your child said is not okay within the confines of of my classroom, but nor, nor the school. And so like that, that's, that's, for me, that's, that's really important because on the other side, you know, you go, you know, maybe 15, 17 years down the line and they want to become teachers and they don't even realize that the things that they say or the things that they participate in are inherently wrong and racist because no one has ever had that conversation with them. And so I, as an educator, have to spend 10 weeks of unpacking, you know, 18, 20 years of stuff that they have been, um, been surrounded by that they have been consuming and they have never really just asked themselves, why am I participating in the system? Like, why do I believe these things? Do I believe them be as as true or do I believe these things because I've been in a social environment that has um, made me to believe these things to be true. Um, And so that's a lot of work on me. It's very taxing. That's why I'm going bald. Right. And so, (laughs) and so, um, man, (laughs) just as an observation it's interesting and and i've seen many many of people do it like you use the name for an example timmy you use the name johnny david or whatever like all these white anglo-saxon names and like there's even that you know so it's interesting how even you know as men of color we're giving examples about children we default to white children whether or not we're like talking about white children Mm. maybe in our subconscious, we were, you know, why why aren't we bringing out like Tayshawn or Jesus or Guillermo or or whatever? Sure. Because a lot of our names have already, even our names have been like, 
co-opted by whiteness, our identities in that sense. You know, so it's just interesting as, you know, we're giving out examples about these metaphorical people. <laughs> they're, they're white, you, whether we intend for them to be or not. And I remember, you know, asking my mom, like, yo, why'd you name me Mike? And she was <laughs> like, there's two reasons. A, I need you to get a job one of these days. So I needed you to have, you know, I'm half the Caribbean. We could have been, I could have been named anything. But she was like, yo, I need you to have a job on your job application one day. And then the second reason was she just loved her. So Michael Jordan. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right, but now a question. Oh, were you going to say something? No, I, I think, you know, to your point, you know, I think it makes me think about like, even like, okay, like when we think about like the, the wages of, of white uh, of femininity, right? And like white women, like it's like uh, backyard patty, barbecue, Becky, this and that, right? Like it's, there's a, there's a, there's an association, I think, that that is into play. Uh, so I think I hear you on one regard, but there's a reason why um, I, I try to sense uh center maybe like more of a a white sounding anglo-saxon name because there's there's something there's something about that or or the karens of the world right um so do you do you then are you uh, i guess just out of curiosity are are you cognizant of like when you're talking about metaphorical child of color that you use a sort of child of color name like like a like a jerome right like <laughs> you know like yeah yeah you know um but i i think you know for me why why i choose not to is that like there's already so many pervasive narratives about this black names right and so um I, for me it's just about like i'm not here to, to pathologize further black people or black names or anything that's associated to black people right i really need to i need white people to be implicated in themselves within this to have these these deeper uh, the discussions, right? And so, you know, for when I say Timmy, I, it's like a, a cue that they know what I'm will, what I'm really trying to to, to get at the heart at. Um, but I think that I think the point that you're making is, is, a, is a good point. And I guess bringing us back to our <laughs> sort of topic of the insurrection, um, how how do you explain the difference between in reactions between Black Lives Matter protests and the insurrection? You know, to students that you work with oh man you know I, I think you know i think it's really hard to one i would say like it's really hard to know what's in people's hearts right and i think that's the hardest part i think when we talk about like white people uh, because i don't know if they are a conservative they're a moderate they're a bernie bro progressive leftist you know um and so, you know, everyone really has their own views about Black Lives Matter. And it's very hard to like, kind of like sift through, um, I think my, my, my pre-service teachers understand so, like, what Black Lives Matter is, what it actually is, but also how it's been de depicted within media um, and then how they make sense of that in the world. Um, but for me, I, I just hope that like, I, I hope that they, uh, my, my teachers can really see that, that racial boundary, like Du Bois talks about the, the, the color line, right? And I hope that they can really see that like how, like the facts of life for black people are totally different, pale in comparison to the facts of life of white people, right? Because I'm just like, there's no way, there's no way possibility that like a group of, let's say maybe 10,000 black people could ever storm of capital the U.S. Capitol, no less. And get inside. There's no way. Like this, Washington Capitol. Like, <laughs> you know, like there's no way. And so, like, I also say this because, like, we, uh, you know, we reside in Washington State. You know, we also had 
you know, people also, you know, storm the, the Washington State Capitol in Olympia, right? And like, you know, try to like, you know, I guess get Jay Inslee. And I'm just like, in what world, like how, and that, how is that even a possibility? Um, so I, I, for me, it's just like, I hope that they can see the, um, the duality of how we really do live in uh, uh, two Americas. Yeah, and I think, you know, on, at the, on the early childhood end, I, I, it's been very, just very factual that Black people have been mistreated for a number of years. And now here's this movement that has come up to express that frustration and that anger and, and sadness. And then also to be, to be a, a group that promotes change for the fairness of Black people. And I feel like that's, you know, just off the top of my head, maybe the most factual way you can kind of put it. Whereas this other group, they've only had one time time where one thing was taken away from them. And now now they're, they're doing this. And the way that it's being met is vastly different. And I think it is appropriate for uh, early childhood educators and uh, elementary educators to show those pictures, you know, and to compare and have children compare, you know, just to look at the visuals. Children are, young children are in that mode of like, what's the same, what's different, what's fair, what's not. Let's just use that as learning opportunities with these visuals that we have and, and really just talk about it and normalize, what? normalize the discussion of heavy things not make normal that people should be doing this. But if you do that, you're, you're accused of being uh, being the leftist, a liberal, some cultural Marxist by like having these these conversations within a classroom, right? Because parents don't want to have it, right? Like they're like, you're doing too much, you're being too political. Um, you know, you just, just teach what the, the standards are. And I, th- I think that is sometimes parents uh, are one of the biggest impediments to um, actually even achieving any type of um, equity or educational justice because, you know, parents will always block or negate those, those type of conversations, those heavy conversations. Because it's uncomfortable. And, you know, you know again, I, when you, right when you brought that up, Sister Idrima Jordan's words came in my head. Yeah. Are we going to prioritize hurt feelings? Or are we going to prioritize what's fair, equal, and just, and ha- and dismantling historical systems of oppression? Hi, Ijima. Yeah. <laughs> or, you know, and, and, and to, I guess to that point, it's like, well, like, why would you, right? So this is how I know, right, like, why people do know that they have the benefits of being in this world, because, like, they... They, they, they see that that changing tide of like what is happening and they don't want that really to, to go away, right? So I, I really think about that, that to go back to the idea of like self-denial, right? Like they don't want to admit that like, that, that they, they, they do have this power, right? But they also know that they don't want to be quote unquote the, the minority in this country because they, they know how, you know, minority people, put in air quotes, are, have been treated. So I'm like, so you do know how it is to be, you know, right? So it's like, so you do know, you just, you're choosing not to. And I think that's the issue. It's like, well, people realize that they do have power, but they they don't want to really change that that system. And I think that's really at the heart of, you know, why we have so many issues that people don't, really don't want that change. Um, and I think they had saw, certain, certain people in this country had saw with Trump, it's kind of like that last gasp. Or like that holding on to the the vestiges of like whiteness and white supremacy. Um, 
But, I, you know, and I'll just say this and I'll, 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 you know, be quiet for two seconds. It's like, you know, the, 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 the funny part is it doesn't matter if it was Barack Obama, Donald Trump or now Joe Biden. Right. Like these, you know, these the presidents that we have don't really change the, the outlooks of black people. Right. And so like so it makes me it, it I'm uh, I, I'm sometimes lost because like, you know, like these these white people are upset that like Donald Trump didn't win his second term. Right. But when you look at the, the history of like what it is to be black in this country, it doesn't really matter who has been the president. Black people have still been that racial underclass in this country. So it makes me wonder then what is it about Trump that really uh, made people latch on to him? You know, this came up in, in my class with seven year olds where. I was just, you know what I mean? I was on my way out of, to go get some grubs, go get lunch. And I had heard the rumblings of, of what was happening in D.C. And then one of the kids came up to me. They were like, did anyone get killed? And I was like, oh, no, no, not that I know. And then they're like, well, they're all white, right? And I said, well, majority of them. How come Black people, you know, got killed during the Black Lives Matter and not white people. And I had a I had to sit there, you know, and just and tell them the truth because once again teaching is political. And I had to tell them that it's probably because they are black. That's why they were killed. And it was just such a sobering moment the fact that I have to continually justify for my existence. And I have to then try to protect this child who was brown and let them know that they're going to be okay as well. Like, there's a lot of stuff <laughs> put it against us. But that if you're in community with me, if you're in community with Nick, if you're in community with the mayor, that we got your back and we are here to support and uplift you. Yeah, and I think, you know, when I think about that, like with myself being, well, remember when one of our co colleagues was like, hey, Nick, why? I, how come I've never heard you, like, talk about being yeah. Latino or Native? Mm -hmm. And how come, you know, and I've known you for all these years. I was like, because I didn't feel like there was that space for me. Yeah. And so I've been so used to just like, oh, okay, I'm going to be, you know. I'm going to conform to whiteness. Yeah, and then. I mean, I've had to sort of play that role most of my life, you know, uh, and I've mentioned this term and uh, some Mexicans call, um, I would be a Mexican that's called a pocho, where it's like you're, you're on the fence. You can be culturally white and culturally Mexican and you're, you're kind of in both worlds. And, you know, us pochos see it as like a, a sense of strength for sure as these wanderers in both cultures and being able to navigate it. And at the same time, you're never enough for either one. And, you know, and so, you know, when I, when it came to, to being in that place um, and knowing that there wasn't a whole lot of uh, uh, my identity around there, it's like, oh, I know how I, I can de default to, to white Nick identity. Mm. Right. And just kind of live that. And then it wasn't until I got to this new gig that I'm like, whoa, like it just, or, or even, I mean, to be honest, to have Mike join over at the team and, and more people of color, then you can, it started to leave me and my others, my, my true self, I would say, like was really coming out more. And so, 
yeah, it's just, and so back to like when we have young kids or kids of color in our classes, you know, this is why we're talking about like the need for more male of color, especially representation in the classrooms. So that way, because there are a lot of kids who are of color and they need to see themselves, even if it is a darker shade of themselves, like, you know, so they go, yeah, this person's got, got my back, you know, but yeah. So we all fall along the, uh, the Brown spectrum, you know, and, and it, it, and I think when we identify those who are maybe somewhere along that spectrum with us, then it feels a little more comfortable to be oneself. Right. I mean, you know, like, what does it mean to be like within white spaces? And I would say like being on a, a college campus uh, and being maybe like one of the only, I don't know, five, six black faculty at a, at a R1 uh, institution, um hashtag do better but you know so when you know black people have been being murdered right and black men black young men and even women uh trans people as well right and so there's no university statement there's no type of like dialogue you know you know maybe like my white colleagues will say like oh it's been crazy you know these last few weeks or something of that nature or uh or maybe they'll share with me a hashtag or they or they'll tell me like well i saw the video but it was too traumatizing for me as as a white person and I think about like the racial injury that's affecting me every day because like I have to live the life of, of, of a black person and I, I don't even have the spaces to even have those conversations. Um, and I think about like how deeply that hurts me day after day. So, I mean, as maybe like as uh, maybe uncomfortable or as deep as that conversation that you had with that, with that child, Mike, I think about like, at least you had, you had, there was a space to have that conversation and that, you know, someone is there to listen to them and also to affirm them and just, just to be there. Um, because to, 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 to be in white spaces, uh, sometimes you don't have that, you don't have that ability. And they, you just have to be like, you know, I'm just the mirror. I'm just this guy here that teaches diversity. I know black people being killed, but I'm going to keep doing my job on diversity. So it's just, um, to, to be seen, but to never really be recognized and acknowledged is the really, um, it's the part that really hurts. So I'll leave us with this kind of last question is, how do we, as, as various people across the, the black and brown color spectrum, <laughs> how do we ensure that we don't vendor those who are Filipino, those who are South Asian in, in other identities? Because such, so much of the focus in the United States of America is on blackness, and, and rightfully so, because that is the biggest injustice, and that was what the United States was founded upon. How do we go about ensuring from, from us, from voices of color, that we don't render our other colleagues of color invisible? Right, or even like keep promoting that my, uh, model minority, right? Because, mm -hmm. like, you know, and, and, and I wonder if it's something. When, when there are their their particular celebrations that they have, and by that I mean like political ones, mm. or celebrating their political leaders, how do we you know like show up to their their yeah. gatherings, show up to their well virtual gatherings at this point, um, you know, and reaching out to those community partners that are especially if you know you're in a region like Washington, especially Western Washington, where there are a lot of Southeast Asian Southeast Asian Americans. Asian Americans, uh, Pacific Islanders. I think, uh, yeah, just connecting them or, uh, or connecting yourself to them, right? 
I've even stopped saying or even shifting my language when I'm talking to white people. I'm like, yo, happy Gregorian New Year, right? And then making sure that I'm uplifting, <laughs> like, oh, happy Chinese New Year's to those who celebrate that. Or, you know, Christmas, you know, yeah. I like to go, I, I make sure I, I, I text my, uh, my brothers and sisters in two spirits who, who identify as black to be like, yo, happy Kwanzaa. You know, that's our celebration right there. Mm-hmm. I think I forgot to text you that in there. But you know, (laughs) (laughs) we say that now a couple weeks later. (laughs) Um, Yeah, I I think to to that point, like how to not to render, you know, people um, or erase them. I mean, right? Like, I think, you know, we. We have to see them, right? And I think you know, but beyond that, you have to see you know the, the structures of oppression that really that really hurt them, right? Or you know, that are really you know antagonizing them. And so I, I would think about like you know, for me, it's like about coalition building, right? Like you know, like we are all harmed by white supremacy, right? And I think as you know, black, brown, indigenous folks, right? Like we are all harmed by white supremacy in so many different ways. But I think it's very important for us to to understand the nuances of. Uh, of certain types of oppressions, right? And so it's very important for uh, other folks to understand, non-Black people of color understand like um, how they are also implicated within anti-Blackness, right? And so that's, I think for me, that's something important um, as well. So like, it's about just seeing the walls, seeing, you know, seeing the walls of oppression that people are really uh, faced with and, you know, being up to being there to to support, to be in solidarity. And again, not in like, maybe like, you know, paternalizing way, right? Like, you know, what do you need from me? But like, you know, I'm here. Like, how can I support you? Like, what do you, what, you know, what do you need? Um, how do I build these? How do I tear down these structures with you? Um, how do I, how do I liberate? How do I help give you that liberation or get you to that point? How do I help you sustain joy? Like, what can I do for you? Um, and I think that for me, like, those are the questions that I really try to, 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 to center um, and think about, but I also try to think about like how I'm also implicated in these systems as well. Like we all live in this, right? Like this is like the matrix, like there's no getting out. So I, I think about like how we're also implicated in these things, right? Like I'm a black cisgendered heterosexual male. So I, I really want to try to center, you know, like, you know, for those that are gay, trans, uh, gender non-conforming, and, you know, just questioning, you know, you know, black people, right? Like, you know, what does that mean, right? Like, and how do I need to show up and do better? And sometimes it's listening, Sometimes that's donating money. Sometimes that's reading books. Sometimes that's just shutting the hell up, right? And just making space for other people, right? And so, like, I think, you know, we just need to realize, like, what do people need in spaces to be seen, to be heard, to be affirmed, um, and, and to be sustained? Well, I appreciate you all. You know, this is an impromptu kind of session that we had. Um, but once again, we drop the knowledge and, um, couldn't, couldn't do it without y'all. So yeah, thanks, Mike. Much love to to both of y'all. Thank you, Doctor Gilmore. <laughs> of course, of course. And my offer still stands: forty nine ninety five. Now the dollar more for a race confessional expert. Expert, I will be there for the white people that are waiting to uh, expunge themselves from race and racism. <laughs> <laughs> All right, y'all. Take care, y'all. Peace out. Thank you.